Good morning, C4 family. Really glad again that you're here with us this morning and want to say to the many of you watching, listening online in province or in another place, another country, we're really glad you're joining us here this morning. So good morning to all of you. We'd love everyone, please, to take out your Bibles if you got them this morning virtually or physically. And we're going to ask you to turn or navigate to John, again, chapter 11, just near the end. It was the end of fall and the season of winter was coming. I think all of us who live in southern Ontario would say that there's nothing more beautiful in midsummer than being surrounded by big trees and wind blowing through it at night. You know what I'm talking about? We are so uh, privileged up here to have and live among just thousands and thousands of trees. And it gets even more beautiful in the fall when it, like the whole world becomes a painting, doesn't it? Purple and yellow and it's just uh, it's beautiful. But then nature turns on us. And the leaves decide to die, and they fall all over our lawns. And we end up spending hundreds of hours among us, thousands, raking up leaves. How many of you did that this fall? Raise your hand. Just a ton. I mean, so it's the end of the fall, and we're in our newer home, and there's a lot more trees around that property than the one we had before. And we left the raking too late. It started rained, you know, and it gets pretty gross. And so uh, one night I drive home, and actually the Powells were over, and, uh, and we just decided to use our children as slave labor, we admit it, all six of them, and started having them to rake with us. And so we're just doing the whole thing. I think we were in bag 21, and we were raking and having fun. The kids je- kept jumping, of course, into the leaves that we were trying to rake. Love, joy, peace, patience again, always there. And uh, as we're doing this, as we're, we're building this, something felt wrong to me. Uh, really, really wrong. And I I didn't understand what was going on. I just instinctually knew something was wrong. We kept raking, and I said, you know, by the way, no children were put in the bags or anything, not like that. Uh, Noah, Noah, where are you? Bag three. No, um, uh, but I I was looking around. I just, I, 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 what was wrong? And then it happened. I looked down at my hands, and my wedding ring was gone. Gentlemen, is this a good thing? No. So I yelled, stop, and everyone froze. And I said, my wedding ring is gone. Now, it could be anywhere. we got 21 bags of leaves. We've got mud everywhere. And so what do we do? Well, this, we literally start taking out the bags. We've worked hours to build. We start cutting them, pouring them out on the driveway. And I am on the ground doing this. Now, people start walking by us, and they are deeply perplexed. As we are dumping hours of work on the ground... This 37-year-old guy is in the mud. The kids keep running around. Ah, you know, I'm not at that point. Bag 15, I found it. Amazing. Amazing. I was just like, oh, my goodness. And then we left the leaves and went inside and had a hot chocolate. Now, they're not still there today. But what was interesting about that moment was it was a moment of desperation. It really was. Not just economic for the future of my marriage. Uh, It's just a moment. And when the neighbors were walking by, they did not comprehend what was going on. We were undoing hours of work and looking like fools, especially me, whipping through all of these leaves. See, what we were doing was so countercultural because they knew what was supposed to happen. Why didn't they understand? They didn't understand that something very dynamic and precious, something that symbolized the great love of my life other than God, had been lost. And it was worth undoing everything to find it. If they had understood what was missing, they may have joined me. But since they did not understand, they thought it was, here's the word, foolish. 
See, this is what we're going to dive into today. We are about to encounter an act that is completely, from a worldly view, foolish, stupid, a waste of time. And yet, if you understand why it is taking place, it is the most beautiful thing you could ever do. Last week, we were in John 11, and we were beginning to see Jesus' last final days before his murder and his death. We ended with one of the most amazing stories, didn't we? Where Jesus showed up and he, and he rose Lazarus from the dead. But not only was the story amazing, actually the reaction of many of us here was amazing. Last week we saw, remember, the seriousness of Lazarus' condition, moving from sickness to death, the loss of all hope. And then last week we saw Mary and Martha plead, beg, desperately call upon Jesus to come and transform a hopeless situation into a hopeful one. Remember, under God's sovereignty, Jesus delayed, and then he came, and we saw Jesus in all of his divinity, his holiness, his love, his humanity. He revealed to us the power of permission-based ministry, and then what did he do? He rose Lazarus from the dead, and the funeral became a homecoming. And then we, as a church family at this moment, talked about the need to see that our situation in Durham and our situation in much of this church and in some of our families and in some of our spiritual walks is no different at all. I I, I preached it this way. We are having a Lazarus moment and we need to acknowledge it. Many of us among us are spiritually sick and hundreds of thousands around us are spiritually dead and they were without and are without hope and only when we see and acknowledge and live with and live under the understanding will we become desperate enough to act. We talked about how Mary and Martha were that profound example for a local church to come to Jesus desperately, not giving into fatalism, nor giving into self-sufficiency, but going to the one that had changed their view of history, filled with that radical new hope founded in the person of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. They cried out. What an example that we need to do in prayer. And then we talked about the power of testimony, right? The power of people standing and publicly saying, listen everyone, I was Lazarus, but Jesus has come and brought me back and brought my situation back from death to life. And at the end of that message, if you were here or watched online, I started to ask people to stand. If they truly had had a Lazarus moment since November 1st, 2010, And as I went through story after story, over 50% of our adults and teens and young adults stood as I read off these themes. Here are the themes that I read off. I said, have you become a Christian since November 1st, 2010? Was your marriage dead, the divorce papers signed, and suddenly you now are in love with your spouse again because Jesus has showed up? I said, do you have a new understanding for Jesus' truth in your life? A new concern for lost people? Have some of you who are just not like this started in your private times weeping over the lost? Do you have a new prayer life in the last year or two years? Do you have a new empowerment with your spiritual gifts? Do you have a new love for God's word? It's by the Bible. Has it come alive to you in a fresh way? Have you begun or have you been able to forgive people that you could never forgive and you just know that you know it's Jesus? I said, have you been set free? You yourself, in your mind, your body, your soul, been set free from the demonic? Have you repented from sin? Not just confessed it, but actually saw the 180 begin in your life. Do you have a new love for others you didn't love before? 
I said, do you have a new love for church leaders that you did not have? Do you actually love the local church for the first time or all over again because you've realized you can't have the head without the body? Have you stood in your home against evil and declared in the name of Jesus, no longer can there be presence that is not from him and you've seen victory? Do you have a new mercy for people around you? Have you openly confessed your sins to other people with no hiding at all and, and, and got healing? And I asked, have you actually sensed the actual presence of Jesus? As people stood, 1, 2, 15, 20, 30, 50, hundreds, and then people started raising their hands. They were saying, not just situation one, but five, eight, and ten, that was me too. People all this week have been connecting with me on Facebook, on Twitter, talking to me, saying, oh, John, we heard what was happening. I just want you to know, if I had been there, I would have been standing too. I had someone say to me this week, my marriage is saved also. Another person tweeted me and said, at this moment, I'm listening to you. I'm having a Lazarus moment right now online. Dave was saying he was on a plane. He was raising his hand in the plane, flying here, saying, it's me. Was anyone encouraged, by the way, last week? Profound, beautiful, and real. Mary and Martha were filled with new hope, new faith, new power. And we as a church are finally, truly beginning to see and believe that Jesus is maybe coming close to us too. And not just to raise us from sickness and spiritual death, but is drawing near to Durham to raise many, many others back to life. Jesus is saying, come back to life, C4. And Jesus, the living word of God, is saying, Durham, come out of the grave, come and live. Yet that is not the whole story. It's not the whole story in the book of John, and it's not the whole story for our church. Though many, many people believed on Jesus after Jesus physically rose Lazarus from the dead, not all were excited by his coming work. Many of the religious leaders suddenly go back to Jerusalem and instead of being in awe, instead of being moved back to praise and being renewed or revived, they are filled with trouble, they are filled with fear, they are filled with anger, they are riddled with suspicion. See, the dilemma they are facing in their mind seems unresolvable. Remember, at this moment, for three years, Jesus has taught with more authority than them. He doesn't have the education, and they do. Jesus has outwitted them time and time again, and when they have become so enraged and tried to kill him, he has actually been able to escape from them every single time to their constant frustration. And even in this moment, as Jesus claims not only to be Messiah, the King of the Jews, the true good and only shepherd, the only gate, the only voice, the resurrection and the life, and God in flesh, his popularity grows more and more, even though they have decided and have declared he is a blasphemer and he is from the devil. They believe that everyday people are being deceived by the greatest charlatan that they've seen in hundreds of years. By the way, do you know why the religious leaders of the day really thought Jesus was evil? It's not because of what he was doing through signs. See, this is how the mindset went. And by the way, if Jesus showed up today, a lot of pastors would have the same worldview. Prophets do miracles. Sorcerers do miracles. Say they had no issue with the supernatural. Prophets defend the word of God. Sorcerers encourage the breaking of God's word. Jesus does great, great miracles, but in our opinion, he breaks God's law. So he must be a what? Sorcerer. They don't condemn him for what he is doing. 
They're after him because they know that they know that he's claiming to be something they don't believe he is. And, by the way, they think his power source is Satan himself. Jesus' popularity grows more and more. What to do, they think. Hundreds, maybe thousands, now physically healed, set free from the demonic. Hundreds of thousands may be exposed now to himself and his teaching. A meeting like no other is now called, in chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests, the Pharisees, call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they say. Here is a man performing many miraculous acts. They call the meeting of the Sanhedrin. We learned earlier in this year that the Sanhedrin was made up of the high priest, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. See, this is the greatest Jewish minds of law and history and faith. And they had jurisdiction over every Jew on earth. You could live in Rome, but if they showed up and you're a Jew, they have authority over you. I jokingly said, if, if Israel had a parliament, a supreme court, and a Jewish version of the Vatican, and you put that all together, that's the Sanhedrin. So they meet, and they ask the question, what are we to do? And then verse 48 really reveals why they're upset. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe on him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This guy is getting too powerful. Everyone's going to follow him. And especially after he raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. I mean, if he keeps going like this, we're going to be, ready, irrelevant. And not only will he become a threat to us. See, he'll get so popular, the Romans will suddenly catch him on their radar. And they don't like anyone who gets too powerful and popular. We've seen what they've done in other nations, and we've seen what they've done here. See, if he gets too popular, this Jesus, whether he knows it or not, could unleash a personal, a religious, and an economic holocaust he doesn't understand. See, if the Romans feel he gets too much power, they're just going to come in and not only murder him, but some of us, and he'll crucify thousands, and then they'll just say, it's done. What do we do? One of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You little children. You know what you're supposed to do, and you're just afraid. Why is this little thing, why is the tail wagging the dog? Grow up and stop acting like idiots. Everyone turns and listens to the leader among leaders. Caiaphas, interesting, was a Sadducee. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. And so Jesus rising, raising Lazarus from the dead has violated this high priest theology at its core. But historians tell us more. See, this guy had been the high priest for 16 years because he collaborated with the Romans. Not only that, historians tell us, highly educated, smart, cynical, ruthless, cold, calculating, very capable, self-sufficient, shrewd, and self-satisfied. This man has reached the height of religious, political, and economic power. So what to do with Jesus? The one that by word and deed has now violated every this man, everything this man holds. He's going to take away everything he holds. He's got the answer. Kill him. This is simple, everyone. Do you not realize, verse 50, it is better for you that one man die for the people than a whole nation perish. You need to kill the one to save the herd. 
It's clear, everybody, if it's not clear now, we've put up with this for one, two, three years. You need to kill him and do it by any means necessary because if you don't, boys, you listen to me, everything you cherish, religiously, economically, politically, it could be taken because you don't have the courage to get rid of this person who we know is false. Get some guts and get it done. As he's uttering these words filled with hate and misunderstanding and religious blindness, God is on the move. Heaven chooses to use his very death threat to fulfill his work. Verse 51, I love this. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. How I love the sovereign will of God that cannot, that cannot, cannot be stopped. Even those that oppose God end up speaking God's truth into existence. See, this calculated rant becomes prophecy for the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ that we share in. Whether Caiaphas understood it or not, at that moment, he was actually saying John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to die. Isn't that amazing? I love what he says at the end too, and not just for the Jewish nation, but to bring all of God's people into one. See, what we share right now that we take for granted is this, that Jesus has brought together Jews and non-Jews who have accepted him as Messiah and the Son of God. It's what St. Paul would later write in Galatians. There is neither Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, for you are all one in who? Christ Jesus. Caiaphas is actually prophesying what we experience in Ajax today, the church. Sovereignty will never be thwarted by anyone, anywhere, at any time. It says in verse 53, from that day forward, they plotted, on, plotted Jesus' life. And later at the end of the chapter, it says they gathered together and they told everybody that if you see Jesus, you're supposed to report him. The scene is set. Passover the high holy feast is about to take place around this time. Hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million, will come into Jerusalem, and this is where they plan to catch him because, see, Jesus has come to Passover and would be commanded to like a good Jew that he was. And so Jesus, time and time, has shown up. He will again. The city is going to be filled with priests, and this is where they're going to deal with him. But before Jesus chooses to come and begin the dark night of the soul that leads to resurrection... One last grand act of worship and celebration takes place. Let's call it part two of the Lazarus event. John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Six days before Jesus dies, this is six days before Jesus is murdered, just two miles again from that hornet's nest of hatred, those working with all of their power to kill him, he comes home again. There's a house party going on, and it's a great one. This isn't sort of a random one where a bunch of people sort of texted each other and it just happened. No, no. This is a house party with intention. It's being thrown for Jesus to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. It says in verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. In Mark's account, it says that it's not Mary's house, not Martha's house, it's not even Lazarus' house. It's another guy named Simon the leper. 
See, this is a gathering of the thankful. Watch this unfold this morning. Think about it. You have a thank you dinner for Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus, who, by the way, at that moment is sitting at the table. The guy was dead and decomposing, and now he's sitting having hummus at the table right there. And not only is that taking place, it's happening in the house of a guy named Simon who used to be a leper, and he's not a leper anymore. Can you imagine the dinner conversation? Can you imagine it? Simon says, you know, when Jesus came, he looked at me. Like, I got to tell you, no one had touched me in years. No one talked to me. They would walk by and scream, unclean. And then this, this holy man stops, this man who shouldn't have had any time for me because it was obviously my sin who probably did this, and, and that's what people told me, and I didn't understand, but he stopped. And he didn't run from me, and he didn't cry out and clean. He not only looked at me, he approached me, and then he touched me, and he spoke. And when he spoke, Lazarus, i got to tell you what happened. You see, the scabs fell off, and suddenly I had new skin. And I had, I had lost three of my fingers. And when I looked down, they were back in my nose. See, my nose was gone, and I touched it, and it was there. And he spoke, and <sighs> Lazarus goes, Guy, that's epic. <laughs> that's so awesome. I know that. Jesus is smiling. He says, yeah, I know, I know, like, it's amazing, I know that voice, but you have nothing on me. I was dead. I was dead, dead. I was in the tomb for four days. See, I died and my soul left. There was no hope. I faced God, paradise. If I could translate for you angels, purity, heaven, the colors, I can't even describe the colors. I ran into my great-grandmother and Moses and Elijah and Abraham, and then I woke up in the middle of testimony time. In the middle of a house of a former leper, an unclean person, and someone who is dead, you notice how Jesus touches unclean things and brings them back to life? Martha is serving. Martha is serving, by the way, now out of joy, gratitude, worship. She is serving with all her might, because how could she not? Jesus is there. I was reading this passage this week and came across a journal entry from one of the children of Catherine Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army. And it reminded me of Martha in such a profound way. He wrote this in his journal. When she was called into ministry, when mom and dad got famous and started preaching, I was her eldest child. I was five. But her home was never neglected, by the way, for her ministry call. I doubt whether she would have even described it uh, that way. See, she liked both of those from God. She saw purpose in the home and in the ministry, in the humble duties in the kitchen table. Uh, her hands were busy with food or in the nursery or putting kids to bed, he writes, or on the bedside of a sick child. See, my mom understood she was working for the glory of God in all ways. I just want to say this morning for you stay-at-home mom and dads, you can serve Jesus by what you're doing. It is profound that you serve children and serve others in your life. I just want to say, Martha is a profound example of how to serve Jesus in the everyday. Be encouraged. Jesus is pleased when you're serving him in the minivan. You need to know that today. Because a lot of you feel you're doing nothing and you're doing so very much. He is pleased. In the middle of food and stories of personal encounter, Jesus sitting there, the disciples 
death threats and secret conspiracies swirling around, everything suddenly changes. Mary, who's in the house, they all know, abruptly does something. She moves quickly. Everyone sort of looks at, doesn't understand. She's got something in her hand, and, and then they see what it is. It's an alabaster chair, and before anyone can stop her, she takes it up, and she smashes it at Jesus' feet, and she begins to weep on Jesus' feet and begins to wipe his hair, and that exotic spikenard actually fills the whole house. This spontaneous act of devotion not only fills the room, but the whole house. Mary is so overwhelmed with thanks, and she is so in love with Jesus and so thankful. She is more concerned with Jesus than what she had just given, more concerned with Jesus than what people would think about her, more concerned that that Jesus would be worshipped than what people would say about her. See, what she did was uh, reactive. It was emotional. It was inappropriate. It was a waste, but they didn't understand. Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his hair feet with her hair. In Mark, it, it says she broke it. See, to use it, you have to shatter it. Pure nard is an aromatic oil all the way from India. It was sealed in small alabaster jars, and for women in this time, it was the heirloom passed down from mother to daughter. And do you want to catch this? Jesus, Jesus is there, and she gives up her wealth for Jesus. She gives up her family history for Jesus. She pours everything she owns all over Jesus. Let me again say this morning, Mary is more concerned with Jesus than what people will say. She does not stop to calculate public reaction. Mary violates all sorts of norms she's not supposed to here. Women were supposed to be serving, eh? Second, you're never supposed to touch the feet of another. It's degrading. Third, by Jesus sitting there and Mary wiping his feet with her hair, she has now lost all public dignity because Jews at that time thought that a woman's hair was the crown and glory of a woman. And so she has now given up her dignity for Jesus. And not only that, women were never permitted to take their hair down in public ever, and she just did did this in a group and in front of men. And then here's the most important thing. The perfume that she breaks was not only heirloom. This is Mary's dowry. This is the thing that lets her have a husband and survive in the society. And this woman comes and she gives up her dowry for Jesus. She gives up everything Public dignity, all the cultural rules. She gives up her family history, her heirlooms. And once you break it, you can never put it back. You can't put toothpaste back in the bottle, can you? It's like this on a whole new scale. This act is is pregnant with Old Testament illusion. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and oh, here's what's taking place. Mary is doing this. She's declaring Jesus is the great, true, and most extensive prophet, for he is the way and the what? The truth. He is the great high priest who will intercede for his people. He is the king of the Jews, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess what? Jesus is what? Lord. And here you have this woman declaring in the house of a leper in front of a raised man that Jesus is who she, who she declares he is and she is proclaiming it as a second-class citizen on the wrong side of the law. It looks like the kingdom of God has showed up in this house. 
What a desperate, what an extravagant, what an excellent act. It's iconic worship. It's pure devotion. When's the last time we saw this? When's the last time we have this? Oh, that's right. It was 31 years earlier. Jesus was my son's age. Noah, running around, touching everything he's not supposed to. And these kings from the east show up. And they say to Mary, we have followed a star and we know that this child, this child is the king. And what did they do? They worship him and they give him gold. And what's the next one? Frankincense, which is pure nard and myrrh. And they worship him. The educated know him. The uneducated, the the first, second, and third class citizens. See, don't you understand? John is beginning to show us that Jesus has come to redeem the world. The world. Verse 3, part, the second part is my favorite. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It, smet, it spread through the house like a, like a campfire. You know, when smoke spreads, it blankets all that are present. See, when real worship happens, you can't run from it. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected if you read Mark's account, so we don't just get all up on Judas's face, it says most of the disciples objected. He's angry. He's gone, he says. This is, a, this is a stupid act done by a stupid woman. Don't you understand what you've just done? He misses, of course, this is showing that Jesus, of course, is about to do the same thing. He is about to spill his blood also. This this image symbolizes what is about to happen. Of course, the crowd's going to cry out, what a stupid man Jesus was. What a useless act. What a waste. And yet they do not know what will come of it. Wasn't this perfume? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Can you imagine Judas saying, that's 60 grand you just threw out. We could have given this to the poor. The poor. Interesting. Do you think the guys really cared about the poor? Well, there's a reason why he brings it up. See, during Passover, that's when you gave the most extravagant ways to the poor. And it's about to take place. But Judas is covering. It says it right here in the scriptures. He did not say this because he cared about poor people, but because he was a thief himself, a keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself so, to, to what was put in it. Judas is living a double life. Days, months, or years, we do not know, but Judas has been building a double life for a while, slowly cultivating bit by bit, allowing darkness into his soul. And see, here's what happens. This act of worship and Jesus' response is nothing but capital T truth. And it hurts him, and it painfully exposes him. It exposes his heart and his motives. See, he, the real Judas, is coming out. The public religious self, the follower of Jesus, and the private self are not the same. The religious facade is being ripped away. Let me ask you this morning, are you Judas? Do you play church on Sunday, but you live like hell Monday through Saturday? Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Jesus knows he's going to die in six days. And it's interesting, I learned a year or two ago that the only bodies that would not be anointed in this culture with perfume were those who died a criminal's death. And Jesus is about to have one. 
While all this is going on, it says in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came. And not only because of him, they also wanted to see Lazarus, who he'd raised from the dead. Isn't that very interesting? They not only want to see Jesus now, but Lazarus. Isn't that the profound truth? When a Christian begins to walk in the power and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, as they become like Lazarus and experience Lazarus moments, they become the contact point for others to meet Jesus. See, that's the whole idea. The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too. For on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Oh, that many of us would become like Lazarus. Here again, we see so much. But connected to last week, I think this is so helpful and so important, so informative, so challenging to us as followers of Jesus. And let me tell you why. See, first and foremost, here's what we begin again to see, that in this context, in our context, when Jesus shows up and gets closer and closer into a life and into a church, though we've served him for years, when he gets profoundly close, the lordship of Jesus is welcomed and accepted, and we want it. And lordship is expressed when we give our best to Jesus and we give our all to Jesus. Martha served with all she had. Mary poured out everything she had. Lazarus walked in the life with he had. Church, here's the question. Is not Jesus worth giving and trusting and surrendering everything to worth it? Is he not worth more than everything we know or hold? Is he not more beautiful and important than our pride? or our possessions, or our plans, or our relationships. Mary humbly gave her best and all to Jesus. See, let me say this. Here's the Twitter moment. Personal worship is the foundation for all other moves of God. Let me say this again. Hear this, C4. Hear this. I say this in the strongest of ways. Personal worship is the foundation to all other corporate moves of God. When I marry people, I tell them that the most important relationship they have is not their kids, that's for sure. It's not their spouse. It's Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more you let Jesus speak into your life, the more Jesus' lordship forms you, the closer devotion you have to him, you'll end up treating your husband and spouse in unbelievable ways. Why? Because you're becoming like who? Jesus. Who's the most attractive person ever? Jesus. Don't you understand this morning that your personal walk matters to all of us? The more that you choose to love Jesus and let him form you and change you and challenge you, the more you worship him in your devotional times, the more you sing to him, the more you let his word form you, you become renewed. And when more and more people become renewed, suddenly it becomes a tidal wave that actually turns into, oh, here it is, a real revival. The scale in our church was demonstrated last week. We're at a 50-50 moment. What side of the scale are you pushing down on? Oh, Jesus, do anything you must because there is a world that is lost and I don't want to just live a life. I want to live a genuine Christian life. Or are you a Christian saying, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to change. Push on the side of the scale of renewal because we need you to because we are symbiotically connected as a family. 
The more you love Jesus, the more you become like Mary, the more it will spill into the house and we will all be changed. Teenagers, hear me this morning. It matters that you do this. Young adults, we need you to do this. Adults, lead by loving Jesus and saying, do anything. Don't stop Jesus. Don't resist Jesus. Don't run from Jesus. His new work in you will affect all of us and may even lead to an awakening where thousands who are going to hell may now go to heaven. Connect the dots for your own walk for us. You cannot give half your time, church. You can't just say, Jesus, you have a little of my money. My talent's mine. My ambitions are mine, not yours. Here's my plans. Would you just bless them? You got to go and say, Jesus, my theology, is it wrong? My history, no, yes, uh, my hopes, my dreams. You see, I see the world in a certain way. Jesus, do you see the world that way? Uh, I grew up in this generation or in this culture. I- is it right or do I need to change? See, your friendships, your marriage, your children, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, everything, everything has to be given to Jesus. Why? Because he's worth it. Because he's Jesus. Because he's Jesus. Oh, that C4 and me, all of us, would become like Mary and smash everything at his feet so the fragrance would fill the house and it would be real. It's interesting, too, that when a church stops playing, not only does lordship become the groundswell of a move of God, but here's the second thing. When the groundswell becomes real, radical public worship is normal in a church. Mary is more concerned with Jesus' opinion. She does not stop to calculate public reaction. She doesn't care what Martha thinks anymore. She doesn't care what Judas thinks anymore. Feared, pride, embarrassment, my background, how I was taught, they are no longer stronger than Jesus in her life. How could they be? She's sitting in the home of a former leper and her dead brother is alive. This is the hope the prayer, the desire of heaven that a church gets to such a place where worship through song and obedience and everyday life becomes normal and you just don't care anymore what anyone else thinks. You'll get on the ground and run through some leaves because what you're trying to find is more precious than public opinion. Oh, Jesus, make us a church of worshipers, radical, radical worshipers. You know, it's interesting. I saw Bruxy Cavey tweet something this week, and I abbreviated it. He said, being a witness, this is my abbreviation, like Lazarus, or being a worshiper like Mary takes two qualifications. Personal experience, not just hearsay, and a commitment. So if you're not a radical worshiper or you're not witnessing, then what are you missing? Personal encounter? You can't just say, I've heard about Jesus. You've had to meet him. Or you're just choosing not to do it. We need to be in the place where we say, I have met him and I'm willing. A church that gets close to Jesus loves lordship. A church that gets close to Jesus knows lordship brings joy. A church that comes close to Jesus gets deeply radical with worship and we just don't care what other people think anymore because Jesus has so changed our life. And here's the last thing, and I end with this. Again, this shows the power of stories. Lazarus was not a special guy. Read the accounts. He wasn't genius, powerful, educated. All he brought to the table was Jesus changed my life and I'm there. And so guess what? Let me introduce you. 
Stories move a church from survival to mission, internal concern to outward mission. Like I said at the beginning of this message and last week, we need your stories. We need you to go more and more public. Can you imagine C4? Can you imagine showing up every Sunday and sometime between the worship and preaching, you have no clue what story is about to be read or interviewed or shown. You just don't know. One week someone gets up and says, you know what, my marriage was done. I'm publicly saying it. And, and, and here's my spouse. Are we okay? We're no, we're in counseling. But we love each other again. Jesus did it. Next week a person says, you know, I've been covering a, a porn addiction for 30 years. And I just want to publicly confess it. And I want to say in front of everyone, guess what? He's healing me. Next week, you know, someone says, I, I learned about my gift of mercy. And now I'm serving in a food bank. And I just am so elated. Can you imagine coming to church every week and going, oh, Jesus is actually doing something all the time. Would you be encouraged? Would you bring your friends? See, this is happening among us, but we need you to tell us. You need to go to your connect group and tell. We, we, we need the story to spread. It's not because C4 is a great church. It's because sovereignty has decided to show up. So I'm going to end my message like this. I'm going to end with a story because I want to encourage so many of you. This week, as I said, I got all sorts of feedback. It was the nice version for once. It was great. Someone on Facebook on Thursday, a guy who's been a Christian in our church for years, he's been a believer for 30 years. He Facebooked me and he said, John, I just, I got to tell you what happened to me after Sunday. So I'm reading this email and this Facebook. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm doing this with permission, by the way. We'll always do it with permission. And I'm just going to read a section of it. Everyone, lean in. Please, listen. It says, however, there was a major thorn in my life, he wrote. I was not on speaking terms with my father for more than 30 years. I actually went to our counseling center for two years to try to figure that out. In January, notice the time. In January 2010, I wrote a letter to my mom and dad and didn't get a response. In December 2010, I went with a cousin of mine to my parents' place. Let's just say he wrote, it didn't go well. My dad actually ended up attacking me. The cops were called, and I chose forgiveness. See, my biggest weakness, he writes, is forgiveness. And, and I pray to God daily that this would change. Like, I, I cannot move on in life unless I forgive. Yesterday was my mom's birthday. On Monday, so this is after I preached last Sunday, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me that I was ready for reconciliation and that my parents were ready too. So I picked up the phone and called her to wish her a happy birthday. And we talked and she said, son, it's time for bygones to be bygones. And I said, mom, I always, always love you. And ready? And then yesterday, I went to my mom's place to celebrate her birthday. And she made a lavish meal. Oh, we're at another party, everyone. And we made up, not only with my mom, but with my dad. God is great. He's always there for us, no matter what. 30 years of brokenness. Jesus has brought it back to life. Brought it back to life. So as the word was given to our church this morning, you who have not experienced yet, call out. You who have experienced, continue. And as the band comes up and we prepare to respond in communion, I just again want to say this. Let us as a church... Continue to seek the Lord while he may be found. One person sent a, 
a text. Well, Dave was up here out of Numbers. It's Numbers 11.35. Very relevant, I think, for some of us before we take uh, number 31 through 35. But you can just, you can read it. And, and God says so amazingly uh, to, to his people, I think it's Numbers 11.35, what, I'll find it later, but he says, do you really think my arm is too short to save you? It's not. Jesus can bring anything back to life. So Lord, we pray as your church that we would become radical people in the sense we welcome the lordship of Jesus. We pray that you would come close and show us the joy of that. We pray at this moment that we become radical worshipers in word and song and deed. It would be real that our history, that our upbringing, that our fear, embarrassment, pride would no longer be stronger than Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that stories, real stories, not invented or exaggerated stories, but real stories would flood this church and not only would build us up in the faith, but actually also would bring many others to Jesus. Because Lord, as you know, and I say this on behalf of my family here, we are not just asking for a moment and season of renewal so we feel better. We are asking for an awakening where thousands of people meet the same Jesus that said to Lazarus, come forth. And so Lord, as we take communion Fill us with thanks. Lead us to repentance. I pray even, Jesus, that you would meet people at the communion table and change them now. Bless these elements as as they symbolize your greatest act. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, let's stand. And a reminder to all of you as we do this this morning, communion is the place where we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. Communion is where we confess our sins. Communion is the place that we celebrate our forgiveness. We also, at this time, because we're doing Come Forward Communion, we give extravagantly and above and beyond. So in the red baskets, this is where we give for the poor, the orphan among us, those who can't afford counseling, that we just give and we give generously. Everything in your pockets, we just give because we want people to physically and emotionally know the love of Jesus too. So come forward when you're ready and you'll be served and let's sing to Jesus.